Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Compartment number six is a romantic new work from Finnish filmmaker Juho Kosmanen. It is a comic tale of a shy student who embarks on a once-in-a-lifetime train journey and slowly builds the connection with a drunken bruiser she shares a compartment with. As they bicker and tussle in their cramped room, the audience must ask, will this odd couple make it to the end of the line? The film picked up the prestigious Grand Prix at the 2021 Cannes Film Festival before traveling the globe where it garnered acclaim from both critics and audiences. Compartment number six is released by Curzon and opens in the UK cinemas and exclusively on Curzon Home Cinema on Friday the 8th of April. For more information on screenings and venues, head to Curzon.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strand. And I'm Anna Bogutskaya. On the show this week, Jared Leto joins the MCU as vampiric anti-hero Morbius. Ruth Jones cannot resist the charms of Tom Burke in True Things. And in Film Club, we revisit the film that lit fires in the loins of many a young millennial in an interview with a vampire. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, I mean, great week in the awards season is finally over. <laughs> Thank God. Another year over at last. But Hannah, you actually stayed up all night and watched it, so didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, purely out of a sort of um, morbid curiosity, I guess. To see, I wanted to see how the new Oscar shake-ups went down. And then obviously... Um, it wasn't the shake-ups everyone was talking about. So, uh, yeah, it was, I mean, aside from the uh, the, the, the slap, uh, it was a very boring ceremony, very boring set of winners. Um, not impressed, didn't enjoy Amy Schumer hosting. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a, a big letdown. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if next year we see, like, a, a load more changes that are meant to kind of revitalize the ceremony so yeah well the the ratings are like way way up so uh they might just kind of double down on schumer and uh... i'm assuming that that the reason the ratings are up is because they must have got a massive boost in the last like hour because they're they're also it's also comparative whether they're up up or not because they're up based on the ratings from last year which were abysmal but they're still significantly lower than a show like the Oscars had always gotten and what it really should get as the premier largest award ceremony in the film industry yeah so they're they're like in, they're still in a lot of trouble I think they're in a transitionary period where they're trying to desperately figure out what it is that needs to stick and what they are 
because there is a lot of servicing of an audience that they're desperate to get but they don't that doesn't really watch the oscars and maybe they they did tune in this year because of the slap <laughs> and and everything everything that ripple the ripple effect of that but they're still in in a sort of limbo well i mean the most popular film dune got all of its awards before the broadcast um and i feel like coda is a best p picture winner was very like kind of didn't make anyone particularly happy <laughs> i mean the representation aside like i don't think that was a diehard wonderful win for like film fans no or particularly a great populist choice no but i think this is the thing that people sometimes tend to forget because we all get so involved with the oscars and the, the playfulness around it and all the discourse and conversation this is an industry awards body the fans uh, like everybody is a movie fan we assume we hope that makes movies but it is still an industrial award ceremony so usually it's the ordinarily it's the best campaigns that will and it has a lot more impact i think who people are in the industry and how the industry perceives them and also the how the actual voting works sometimes doesn't necessarily reflect um fan favorite opinions but the coda team if you look back at the campaign that they ran was an unbelievably stellar campaign and the fact that it was already widely available on on apple to watch was was also really really handy like it had its wave of conversation around it and the backlash that started happening shortly before the oscars in itself not uncommon really interesting and as always i think the oscars as much as they reward quality and and craftsmanship they're also very very heavily political in a film industry kind of sense so it would be very naive i think to just say is this a good movie all of these movies are you know we can we can talk ad nauseum whether they're better or worse than one another at least it's not morbius it's going to be rewarded <laughs> in any oscar soon but <laughs> they're all good in one way or another but at the end of the day it's it's the campaigning that really that really sticks the landing i think well i mean i do at least think it is very funny that apple plus got a best picture oscar before netflix did despite their kind of such intense efforts over the years it's but now yeah but now that's behind us we've kind of got um we've, we've got festival season starting soon and you guys are both going to Cannes. is there anything you're excited about particularly in that's coming up there oh gosh where, where to start with Cannes? um i feel like i mean i went i was lucky enough to go last year obviously and um i think that was the kind of year where everyone was very nervous about what the festival was actually going to be like and then that it was brilliant and really well run and had a great lineup so this year I think they're going to come back uh, swinging I mean we're already talking about every day it seems like there's a new film that's rumoured to be having its premiere at Cannes we're talking about the new Cronenberg the new uh, Darren Aronofsky which admittedly I'm not that excited about um but um yeah, I mean, I, I can't wait. I'm so excited. Festival season is my favourite time of the year. Um, it's like just before the discourse starts. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, um, I'm i hoping that the uh, Andrew Dominic biopic uh, Marilyn Monroe film will be there. I think that's... It depends how the relationship with Netflix kind of pans out. Because um, obviously they've kind of had this very acrimonious... Uh, 
argument about streaming services going on for a while um but i know that they're very andrew dominic is quite outspoken and is very much hoping that it will make it to can um so yeah i'm i'm i can't wait i uh, think it's going to be one for the uh one for the books this year yeah, I love that he's getting ahead of it and just being like, I don't care if you people like it. Such an Australian attitude. I I, I love it. <laughs> and he's just like, you know, all that stuff around like the NC17 rating. And, you know, I just, I, I'm so, we're not going to be bored. I know that much. <laughs> Between that and Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, I'm, I cannot wait. Oh, yeah. Good year for old Hollywood. <laughs> Well, good good year for old Hollywood, and this has also turned out to be quite the year for Batman. <laughs> Maybe we should now move on. That was to... excellent. excellent. Hey, I'm sorry, that's a rock solid that joke. That is a good joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's get started with film number one, Morbius. Dr. Michael Morbius tries to cure himself of a rare blood disease, but he inadvertently infects himself with a form of vampirism instead. So, Anna, your broadcaster, programmer, writer, number one Jared Leto hater, how did you find Morbius? I would just like to put it on the record. I specifically said, are you guys sure you want to book me on this episode? Because I bring in a lot of bias. <laughs> and you said yes. So it'd be funny. So... It will be funny, but also I blame you for the intense, like, body, full body experience of hate and bile that I went through last night at the screening of Morbius. I'm so glad that you, you, were, you know, were able to get through the film. I think that's, that's a, real, a real testament to your professionalism, Anna. I am nothing of that professional, even though Mr. Jared Leto continuously tries to test me. <laughs> Um, especially here where he ruins the three things that I love the most in life. Vampires, facial hair, and black coats. <laughs> Absolutely decimates all the good things in life. I don't understand. Okay, this is, I never thought I'd say this, but I don't think Jared Leto is actually the worst thing about Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> high praise. Because this entire film is just staggeringly boring so dull boring. and lazy like there has been zero effort put into everything everybody seems like they just wore their clothes that they kind of needed to do laundry and there was like oh maybe you know the costume design department will just do laundry for me if i bring my own costumes <laughs> like the, like the creature design when they go into vamp mode is just it's, it's like something from a Buffy episode, but from the late 90s, from the very early seasons. There are little bats that come out of nowhere. Oh, my. Oh, and my favorite thing. I'm not I'm not going to make much sense on this episode, so I do apologize. But my favorite absolutely disgusting display of arrogance on behalf of this film is that they tried to pretend in the London tube was the New York City subway. <laughs> they literally put stickers on Warren Street Station and they tried to pretend like that was New York City. <laughs> they didn't even make a tiny, tiny bit of effort. I thought I was going crazy because there's one shot in the film where you see the shard and I was like, that, that, what? I was like, that's, that's not... And I thought, you know, it's, just, it's an establishing shot. Like, surely, like, <laughs> you, you don't need to kind of go to New York to have an establishing shot. 
And they were very adamant with all their little uh, title cards telling you where we were, which I thought, again, totally mm-hmm. unnecessary. But yeah, it, I, I completely agree. Just the, oh, I, I, I felt insulted. It's not often it's just, that I feel that way. It's lazy, right? Yeah. It's lazy. Oh, it's phenomenally lazy. It's the barest of bones of plot. Like, it it really is just... I felt like it was an entire film that was just cobbled together to set up a mid-credit sequence to open up the next film. (laughs) Oh, very, very accurate. Did you even feel weird that there was... There seemed to be almost no characters? I mean, I'm not talking... I'm even talking about character development. Those things never came up in the script discussions for Morbius. But there, there just seemed to be just, what, Morbius, Milo... Um, his assistant slash love interest. There's no one else in the lab. There's no other people, (laughs) even though he's a Nobel Prize laureate. (laughs) They didn't even write his, you know, controversial Nobel Prize rejection speech. They just told us it was funny and and then we're supposed to believe it. It's like, oh yeah, Morbius is so, he's so edge. He's so punk and so funny. He just threw the Nobel Prize in the face of those Swedes. You're like, oh, well, I guess, I guess he is very funny. I will believe that because I'm being told that and not shown that. It's like they, did they just watch a YouTube video on how to make a Marvel movie and then went for it? Someone just gave them a hundred million dollars to do it? Yeah, my heart sank with that Nobel Prize scene because they get right up to him getting a Nobel Prize. They cut away and then they go to the newspaper like, he has insulted the Queen of Sweden. And I was like, well, that would have been cool to see. I know! But they sort of want him to make him like a bit of a Dr. House character, kind of like, oh, he's not very good with people, but he cares about sick people deep down. But they don't, I don't know. What did you get from Leto's performance? Nothing. You said it's not the worst thing. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not the worst because he's not. Maybe okay. So this is this is this is a far-fetched theory, but maybe Jared Leto is. You know, I'm not gonna use the word actor. Maybe he's a performer who needs extra bits. He needs the prosthetics. He needs the makeup in order to do something, anything, because he's not really doing much of anything here. It kind of feels like an hour and a half long music video for 30 seconds to Mars and that in itself is egregious <laughs> because he's not like he's not giving anything he barely he I mean he doesn't emote in at any point he doesn't seem to have a good grasp of who he, who his character is why is Morbius such a, a good guy we're being told that you know he's this selfless um, guy who's always kind of trying to fix not just his own health issues but everybody else's and kind of save the world and then he's so protective of everyone and doesn't want to lean into his quote-unquote vampirism it's not vampirism he's basically it's like a basically a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde type story but they put some vampiric elements there it doesn't it doesn't really explain the lore or the rules aside from him having to drink fake blood every couple of hours and he, they remind us about 10 times throughout the movie how long he uh, how long in between the blood transfusions goes on i'm like i already know it's 4 hours and 20 minutes i don't need it repeated 5 times thank you very much can we can we move on can we get some character development of something can we get one of the other characters a name or something? Jared Harris has been dragged into this for some reason. He's not even there. He just shows up. It's like, guys, is it time for lunch yet? <laughs> he's checked out, like behind the eyes, just nothing. He's like, he's nothing. He, he, he's like rehearsing his next theater piece in his head. He's gone. <laughs> he's just like, yeah, it's a paycheck. Like, never seen a man 
more clearly there for the money than Jared out. Yeah. <laughs> and I respect it. Exactly. I respect, I respect it. it. Oh, dear. Was there anyone in the supporting cast that you actually did particularly enjoy, Hannah? No. <laughs> um, the bats. The, I mean, it was very funny because I read this interview with Matt Smith uh, yesterday where he was like yeah Karen Gillan like told me to take the movie I rang her and uh, asked her if I should do the Marvel movie and she said yeah <laughs> I was like well Matt has a ringing endorsement um and so he plays the kind of the the villain of the story who is um uh Michael Morbius's kind of a adopted brother from when they were children in this strange greek convalescence hospital which is never really explained how michael gets to be there <laughs> um, because the whole thing is like milo is very wealthy and comes from money but michael but he's also milo... not called milo yeah he's, he's not called yeah. milo <laughs> he's named after a previous dead kid because he can't be bothered to learn new names yeah, yeah. but even just like 30 years later he's still calling him the dead kids. I can't even tell you what his original name was. That's the thing. I was trying Lucian. to think about. Is this Lucian? Oh come on! And then Jared Harris also is calling him Milo. I'm like, this is a form of abuse. Considering that Morbius only spends like what a ten, they really interact for like what a day, two days. The Milo thing really stuck with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> including the doctors for the rest of his life and his time at the Greek convalescence hospital. <laughs> it's just like, okay, it's just easier. It's just easier to get with what Morbius says. <laughs> God, oh, it's just like, it's, it's everything that people say is bad about Marvel movies, just in one Marvel yes. movie. But it's not even like fun bad. You know, like, I mean, I like the Venom movies because I think they're campy and silly and I think Tom Hardy mm. really goes for it. And this is like a Venom movie if you stripped away all the stuff that kind of makes those fun to watch. And it really does feel like this soulless, you know, kind of, oh, we've got to put it out there because we've got the IP. And th there's just no joy, no, not even like kind of world building. We, You know, we mentioned earlier about setting up for like, some other piece of the puzzle in the kind of Sony half of the divorce of uh, Marvel movies. And then um, <laughs> there's not even that really. There's two post credit scenes, which I have no, I guess they're trying to set up like a Sinister Six thing, but it just felt like so weird and lazy. And I was resenting Michael Keaton for being involved. I was just like, Michael, you're better than this. And I, I just, it really is like the, the kind of doldrums of this superhero thing we're in where you, you just it's got to that point now where they think they can just turn out anything and people will go and watch it and enjoy it because it's a, it's a superhero movie. And I, and I think this really proves that's not the case. You need to have at, at least like a performance that is interesting and Jared Leto like I don't like him as an actor I don't like him as a person and at least something like House of Gucci you do feel like this he's got some interior you know kind of uh, idea going on there's a there's a there's a, a performance in that as as Anna said earlier whereas this it's just so flat and boring and you have no reason to root for this man, no reason to be invested in whether or not he succeeds. And the stakes comparatively to other uh, superhero movies are so low. It's just like, oh, his friend is also a vampire 
and and that's bad and it's like well i mean if you think about the universe they exist in with spider-man and all these supervillains killing like hundreds of people on a massive scale i don't know maybe i'm a bit heartless but i was like well one vampire kind of terrorizing the lower east side it's not like worthy of a kind of film arc surely but also to there's such a missed opportunity of well and again this goes back to just how lazy the entire film is is that there is no setup of the rules of this universe right of this world of new new tech vampires like well if they were suddenly infecting other people and there were suddenly kind of um vampires popping up all around london new york uh, or new london that exists in this movie then that's that's a stake that's like oh milo needs to be stopped because everyone's going to be turned into a new tech vampire we don't want that because that's too many vampires for one city. There must only be one played by Jared Leto. But to your point, Hannah, as well, which I think is very accurate, is that, you know, as much as I dislike Leto in general, we'll give him this. He goes for it. He goes up to 11 consistently. And when even he doesn't give not even an ounce, not even, not even like a tiny bit of effort, the entire thing really collapses. It didn't even really start start building itself up because nobody is in this film. Nobody cares <laughs> at all. So how are we, the audience, supposed to care about anything that happens in Morbius when the filmmakers and the cast themselves, outside of jokes about like Jared Harris popping up in his lunch break from the theater to cash in, good for him, no, the the key leads, the key, you know, besties turned enemies absolutely do not give a crap about being in this movie. So how are we supposed to? Yeah, it does feel a bit like the pendulum has swung where, you know, Jared Leto and his, um, is it Leto or Leto? Uh, who cares? He sucks. Um, like in the, when he was in DC and did Joker, it was just like, no, that's much too much. And then he's kind of defected to Marvel. It's like, no, this is much too little. Yeah, he doesn't know how I to think... strike a balance. He, um, and I, I, it is interesting. And you do have to wonder kind of what was going on during the production of this film to make it so bad. Because I mean, for a film to end up this way, so many things have to go wrong. And I, I just, I'm kind of impressed at how incompetent it is. Like this isn't Sony, <laughs> you know, the, the, this isn't Sony's first rodeo. They've been making these films mm. for a while. And I mean, it, I, I don't, I'm not like a big kind of Spider-Man booster, but it was never gonna, I think be as, as good quote unquote as, as those films. But for it to not even have like one redeeming kind of element of it. And it really didn't, it really was just like, start to finish a slog and it was only one one hour 44 but it somehow felt very long but i think because you just don't care you don't care about the the romance subplot we were talking just before we started recording the only thing that kind of i had any emotional connection to was the cat that's it <laughs> very yes. very loud cat who i think was saying i don't want to be involved in this film <laughs> <laughs> Crap fights, crap action sequences, boring plot. I just, uh, it, uh, one of the mo most artless films I think I've seen in quite a long time. It reminded me as well, like when they kept like kind of sort of turning into bats, but not really. I just kept thinking of the um, 
vastly superior what we do in the shadows tv show where they just shout bat mm-hmm. and turn into a bat and i thought I, I just <laughs> i just kept thinking how much funnier it would be if they were just like sh- sh- screaming bat and turning into bats so yeah i think the problem and again another key problem it just reminded me how much good vampire kind of content there is out there and this is just it's not a good superhero movie it's not a good vampire movie it's not a good kind of uh gothic noir type thriller it's just no just 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 a hard pass on every level the homoeroticism wasn't there for me either which is a real <laughs> crying shame I, I refuse to acknowledge this as a vampire movie this is a this is a this is a hate crime against vampires <laughs> So let's get some scores on this hate crime against vampires. Uh, Anna, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Minus five on all accounts. (laughs) Hannah? (laughs) Any better than minus five? Purely out of respect for the little eye scoring system. Um, I'm, I, it's like ones across the board. There is, I, you know, I can forgive a bad movie if I have fun, um, but I didn't even have fun. And in, in my kind of um, very loose, personal, um, like way of the samurai with movies, I, uh, that's the biggest crime. If you make a bad movie and it's not even like fun, then you know you really need to take a long, hard look at yourself and what you're doing in the industry. Uh, so yeah, I can't even like recommend it as like a, oh, it's a good like popcorn movie because it's not. It's just, it's just bad. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with Hannah. I think like I was fully as open-heartedly as I could going into thinking, you know what, maybe it's bad entertaining. It could be bad fun. Imagine Jared Leto going up to 11 as a pretend vampire. That would be, that could be yeah, campy and fun. And it wasn't. It's just boring, mediocre, flat and artless. Yeah, uh, probably three, two, one for me. I did at least get a slight buzz out of like just how little Jared Harris cared. <laughs> And also the little <laughs> FBI agents who uh, had matching mustaches. I thought they were quite cute. <laughs> yeah, you almost wanted better for them. Because I thought that we were going to get more about them. Because they kind of introduced yeah. them. And I was like, oh, there's an odd couple thing going on here. And then it's just no, just nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I got annoyed because at one point he says like, oh, he's killing people in my city. And it's just like, sir, you work for the Federal Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> Lazy. <laughs> Zero effort, zero effort across the board, Jesus. Well, let's move oh, on dear. to something hopefully that you guys enjoyed a little bit more. True things. In a sleepy seaside town, benefit claims worker Kate is seduced by a charming ex-con with dyed blonde hair. Despite pressure from her friends and family to find some stability, she dives headfirst into romance and self-destruction. Hannah, did you like this better than Morbius? Uh, I mean, yeah, but that's like not a high bar to clear, is it? This, I, I, God, I, I think that was like a group therapy session talking about that movie. Um, yeah, I mean, I was interested to watch this. Obviously, it, it had its premiere at Cannes. I think that Harry Whitliffe is kind of a up-and-coming British talent and obviously a big fan of Tom Burke and really like Ruth Wilson so I think it has all the elements for like a, quite a solid erotic uh, drama uh, type thing and unfortunately I was left quite disappointed by it um, 
I have read the book that it's based on and quite like the book. It's a very um, dark kind of like almost a stream of consciousness about this woman who meets a convict and goes on this very kind of like um, disturbing journey of like self-degradation and I guess my problem with the film is that I don't think it pushes that far enough. I think we're meant to get a sense from this that once Kate meets this um, convict benefit claimant um, that it's you know kind of a real um she starts to kind of debase herself and i i mean you get moments of that but for me i just think it would have been a much more effective film if it had kind of pushed this everything a a little bit further and i was just left very cold by it i think even like tom and ruth don't really seem to be doing their best work and i think you know you think about the kind of chemistry that ruth wilson has in um, something like Luther with Idris Elba, which I guess is her kind of like crowning glory performance. And she has like such charisma in in that film. And this, I just found her completely kind of um, flat and and quite irritating. And um, I guess maybe that's the point of the character. But yeah, I was was very cold on it all. It feels like a very... um, second-rate Morven Caller, uh, which is, I think, one of the great films about, like, um, female kind of loneliness. And this, I just... I, yeah, it just really missed the mark for me. I was I was very disappointed by it. Anna, we often talk about, like, you know, how we want more eroticism on screen and, like, female desire and getting rid of the male gaze. Did at least, like, the erotic elements work for you? It did. I'm actually. I was. I really enjoyed listening to Hannah's take because uh, I'm. I'm kind of on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. I found this film very moving and very stirring, and I watched it for the first time a few months ago, and I still found myself kind of bringing it up and thinking about it, and particularly a few choice scenes from the film really stuck with me. So when I rewatched it last night, I it was kind of like. a a very that intensity had not really gone down and I haven't read the book so I'm coming at it only from uh this uh, this film taking it on face value kind of of approach and I'm definitely going to pick up the book now but I have read that it doesn't it does tone down the extremes of of the novel but it really worked for me in the chemistry and the the erotic charge between Tom and Ruth, I thought was completely on point. There was their meeting point and their first kind of couple of encounters and then the the back and forth, the pull and push away that happens, I found so intoxicating and painful to watch. And and I think she really I think she does lean into the kind of the clingy aspect of her character. Um, like Kate is a very kind of clingy and hungry type of woman but she's not quite clear on what she's hungry for or how to get that so a lot of the choices that she makes when she's not around uh, blonde I think is how they refer to him um, in the credits is is quite off-putting at worst well actually in the middle ground it's kind of off-putting it's unhinged at its worst and it's just kind of a bit needy and and annoying in its slightest iterations but I think that the way that she concocts the story about their romance and it's all very 
one-sided from her side and she's kind of completely blinded by her desire and attachment to him when being given nothing but crumbs it's the way that the film is shot I thought really did had the same effect on me of the push and pull where I'm so pulled into her perspective of it that I'm so intoxicated with their with their romance and the physicality of it at the same time the minute it takes a little bit of a step back it's really hurtful to see her put herself in front of this man of this man and prostrate herself in a way that is so demeaning and so hurtful that it becomes very a very intense viewing experience. So I found it incredibly effective. And I was a big fan of Harry's previous film, Only You, and um, which is, you know, categorically a different flavor of, of sex and romance on screen. But this one I found that really stayed with me. And there's a couple of scenes with Ruth by herself when she's not um when she's not interacting with Blonde, when she's not interacting with any of the the very weird pressurized environment around her as well her family her co-workers all these like low simmering tensions that exist with everyone in her world um when she's just by herself and sort of lost and meandering and sometimes also just dancing or or shaking it out in a really uh, in a really strange way I found that also quite moving so I I loved her performance in it yeah, I mean, Hannah, you said that you find her irritating, but like everybody in this woman's life finds her irritating. There's a quite an agonizing scene where she goes on a date with a kind of, in quotes, very normal guy and it ends disastrously. And like that didn't work for you at all? Um, I think that scene is one of the better ones in the film, actually. Um, I don't know. I think maybe it's a case of having such high expectations because I, I did really like the book and I really liked the cast. Um, so maybe I was just kind of, I don't know, you know, um, expecting too much. Cause I mean, again, it, it, you know, Harry, this is only Harry's sec second film, is it? I believe, um, second feature at least. So it's, you know, I, I think she's still got kind of a lot to learn in times of, um, where her career will go. Um, by no means is it sort of, you know, um, an incompetent film or anything. It's, it's it's you know it's very solidly made, and I think there's a scene where the two of them are at, at a lake, which I think has this kind of element of underlying um, uh, like fear almost, because you're expecting something to kind of go very badly, and uh, you know kind of plays with your expectations. I think of. Uh, what happens when a woman is kind of sucked in by a man like uh, the one Tom Burke is playing. But yeah, I just, I I mean, I, I guess everyone finds different things um, titillating. And I, and I was not titillated, Leila. I was uh, I was left quite cold by it all. And I, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I as a, as a um, performance of an irritating woman, I thought that Ruth Wilson really nailed it because I did find her deeply irritating. And I'm sure that a lot of other people will as well. And I get, you know, to be fair, like a female character doesn't have to be kind of agreeable and nice. And, um, you know, it's 2022. I think we've had this conversation so many times about female characters. But um, I guess at some point you have to kind of be interested in them. And I wasn't even really interested in her as a character. Um, you know, I I just think it's kind of a a bit of a misfire for all involved. Even Tom Burke, I think he was a great kind of um, 
male lead. I think he's so intense as a performer. Even he wasn't really doing it for me on this occasion. I find Tom Burke someone quite difficult to speak about respectfully <laughs> because I'm so attracted <laughs> to him. Um, but like, Anna, I mean, like obviously Tom Burke's performance worked better for you. Like, I think he's just got this innate charisma. Yeah. And it is very understandable to, um, you know, in this film or in the souvenir, why you would let this man kind of ruin your life. <laughs> More of a comment than a question, I suppose. <laughs> no, I, I, absolutely. I, can, I, I think I can understand why she was so taken in by him as well. Because he kind of, you know, he rocks up in her life and it's clear that she's not having a great time of it anyway. And I think it does kind of... It's an interesting portrayal of the way that I think a lot of women do find themselves kind of uh, becoming less of themselves in order to, con you know, kind of um, allow a romantic partner into their life. Um, but it also, I think, felt like strangely dated. Like there's no kind of... Um, date on the film there's no I mean I guess it's set in the present but it felt like it was made about 10 years ago um just maybe that's the kind of aesthetics of like British seaside towns but um yeah I don't know it just it just all felt a bit like a conversation that we were having um way before like Fleabag and everything came out and I feel like we, we've kind of maybe moved on a little bit um from this kind of like oh she's quite fragile and messy and you know, I, I don't know. I just, I just thought it was a bit, um, a bit average, really. Not like, you know, not by any. And again, I think having talked about Morbius first has really like given this film like a, um, you know, a kind of a bit of a boost in my eyes because I'm like, well, it wasn't as bad as Morbius. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I think, um, I just really wanted more. I think I wanted a kind of like shock to the system from it because I think that there's such potential there to make a film about a woman who, you know, completely kind of like um, loses herself in this very, what she considers a sort of torrid love affair, but he clearly, it's just like one of the many women that he's philandering about with. Um, so yeah, I think um, it just, it just really didn't, didn't do a lot for me, which is a shame. But I guess where Morbius felt lazy, Anna, I mean, like, I think there's a lot of artistry to this film, certainly, in comparison. Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't even... I, I'm not going to disrespect Harry Woodliffe and Ruth Wilson and Tom Burke by even putting true things in the same <laughs> sentence as Morbius. Like, no. <laughs> there's, there's simply no comparison uh, in any universe. But... It's. It, I think they're also aiming for clearly very different things, but I do. I. I. I do think there's a lot of artistry, and I find what Hannah was saying really interesting about kind of the timeliness or timelessness of the film. And as and as you were talking, Hannah was thinking like, yeah, I don't. I never really felt this film as a trying to be particularly contemporary, but also not because you do see shots of an iPhone at many times. It also isn't really trying to hide or place itself in this, you know, other world where we're beyond um, placing it in a particular time and place. But I did feel that it did feel very contemporary in one specific regard in that it did feel that it was tapping into a contemporary malaise of like the, the the crisis of intimacy 
of kind of this approach. It's not so much, uh, at least the way that I read it, I didn't read it so much about kind of Kate being a messy character. I thought she was very average um, without any big traumas, without any big personality, without really that. She's not that interesting as a person. She does have, though, as all most people do have an interior life and kind of has things that she wants but she doesn't she's not really clear what she wants but she kind of knows that there is there's an itch that needs to be um scratched but what i did find very very interesting and that made it timely is this thing of she desperately kind of craves and almost manufactures a romance a sense of intimacy with this guy when getting the bare minimum and it never really goes into abusive territory, but it does feel very contemporary in the sense that a lot of people are complaining and and thinking and writing about, you know, the crisis in, in contemporary dating and kind of how everybody is jaded and really unkind and really detached almost from their own emotional landscape and how they treat other people. I mean, not to bring in, like, obviously these two things are completely unrelated, but I think that they're coming at the same time. The whole West, El West Elm Caleb conversation that happened a few months ago. If you look at true things and kind of that push and pull of she's seeing it from one perspective and he's approaching it for a completely different thing and you can feel hers but you can see the reality at the same time that's i that juxtaposition um i find very very artfully directed and also difficult to to achieve and that's the thing that's the thing i think that feels most contemporary about it more than any stylistic choice yeah, I think it's for that reason why I perhaps, I mean, without giving away spoilers, the third act probably didn't work very well for me because it felt um, untrue to what had happened beforehand. But I will say that the, the book has an incredibly different ending from uh, from the film and um, a much darker ending than, than the, uh, I mean, I, I think the book generally is much darker, but um, that I think as well is one of the things that kind of, without getting into kind of spoilers, I did think the ending particularly was a bit of a kind of letdown um just because i think you're waiting for some sort of release i mean maybe much like the character um and and you, i never really got that kind of catharsis i found it quite a it was like edging uh, the film you know you're just kind of waiting constantly for something and and the, and and i didn't get anywhere with it but um, i definitely recommend the book to any kind of listeners that are curious because i think it's a very interesting the book is about 10 years old as well so it's that's i think maybe is why it feels dated to me is because reading the book i think you can kind of draw a line from that to where we are in kind of um pop culture feminism now though i don't know how many people out there have actually um read her book i don't think it was like by any means a kind of bestseller or anything but it's certainly a really interesting um kind of descent into like not only i think female desire but also that thing anna's talking about of um this kind of uh breakdown that i think we've had within society <laughs> um between um uh people regarding romance and regarding intimacy and um yeah i think it's Talking about it has actually made me like the film more and be able to see some kind of interesting things in it that I didn't necessarily pick up on in my watch. So I think it's, at the very least, it's kind of a conversation starter, which is, yeah, again, more than Morbius was. <laughs> 
Well, let's get some scores on this then. Uh, in anticipation, uh, enjoyment, and in retrospect. Anna, do you want to go first? Um, four, um, four, four. <laughs> Hannah, what about you? Um, I'm going to go four, three, three, I think. Um, God, probably, um, three, three, four for me, perhaps. I'm not sure. It was kind of that classic 3.5 because I just enjoy, <laughs> I, I, I kind of felt like, oh yeah, that was perfectly good, but I've enjoyed talking to you both so much about it it's kind of given it a little bit of a boost i always do find that when i talk about a film if i'm talking to someone who either hasn't liked it or if i haven't liked it and they have liked it i if it's a good conversation i do tend to kind of think about the film more favorably afterwards so it's good it's what we're here for we're here for the kind of um intelligent discourse around these films well <laughs> we can only hope to kind of you know, raise some intelligent discourse from the rotting corpse of Morbius. <laughs> <laughs> now, let's move on to a much better vampire film, Interview with a Vampire. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Born as an 18th century lord, Louis is now a bicentennial vampire, telling his story to an eager biographer. Suicidal after the death of his family, he meets Lestat, a vampire who persuades him to choose immortality over death and become his companion. Eventually, gentle Louis resolves to believe his violent maker, but Lestat guilts him into staying by turning a young girl, whose addition to the family breeds even more conflict. So I was actually like having a look on the IMDb of stuff, and like this was a period in Tom Cruise's career where I know Anne Rice didn't like him for the part and changed her mind, but it was just this was definitely the apex of the work that he was doing. It was Interview with a Vampire. It was Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut. Um, I mean, is this for you guys one of his great performances? It really is for me. Oh, absolutely. I think this sets absolutely. a standard for vampire movies so high. And maybe a standard I think we're still struggling to kind of uh, keep up with. The 90s, I think, were a very good time. 80s and 90s were a good time for vampire movies. And... Um, I think that Lestat, for me, as a teenager, the first time I watched this film, I was just like, is this what movies are? 
I love this. Like more of this. I I I think it really did kind of awaken something within me um, in regards to kind of um, how fun and kind of flirtatious and homoerotic films could be and uh, a real kind of gateway drug for um the form but also I, I i i think a real kind of um high point for the, the the three central performances in this film it's all of them are so good like cruise pit and um kirsten dunst firing on all cylinders here it's just such a delight and it also feels watching it last night it feels like a a very zippy film i there's there's not one moment of dead air in this it's it's uh all, all bangers all the time it's so lusciously made and it kind of really it has a dreamlike quality without going into sort of dream territory too much because you are going around the world and through the centuries uh, guided by this family of vampires. So it has no intention of being realistic and that I deeply appreciate. But also I was, uh, for context, I, I grew up reading Anne Rice. So I was a big fan of the, um, of the books as well. And I think it, I think the film in a similar vein as the original interview with the vampire book did brought a level of high-mindedness and respectability to the vampire genre, which had been kind of considered horror fodder and not at all really taken seriously and was just, you know, in the genre bin in both literature and film. And this brought a, a gravitas to it. And I think the fact that it starred, you know, Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise, arguably one of the biggest movie stars the two biggest movie stars and heartthrobs of their time of that part of that particular moment in time is a massive massive statement and the fact that Tom Cruise in particular kind of gives it so much in this role he goes completely forward without ever hamming it up it is done completely straight-faced and the seriousness with which the entire film treats their Lestat and Louise relationship, the world they inhabit, how clearly it lays out the rules and uh, and how deeply it goes into what it into the the feelings aspect of being a vampire. The fact that Louis is basically just depressed about being a vampire from the moment he actually gets turned into one and just moans throughout the entire film is is kind of unheard of it's like you're you're prioritizing the the emotional landscape of an undead being who eats who drinks blood and lives through the centuries it's kind of incredible and the fact that they kind of start zeroing in on the on the tensions of this family that they create is it never it it's one of those films that has aged so well i think the more i revisit it the more it gains new layers and and the cheekiness of it and the humor of it is always so surface but kind of weirdly subtle in its own way and it is like hannah said just a ride <laughs> you do not get bored with this film i've watched a lot of vampire movies and sometimes like there are repetitive tropes and there are kind of consistent styles and and things that people do and kind of rules to the being of a vampire but if Interview with a Vampire ever comes on or it ever, you know, it's showing at any time, 
you just have to continue watching. It is deeply engaging and really enthralling. It really pulls you into this world. And I think the framing device, which is completely, you know, um, faithful to the novel as well, of the journalist being told the story by Louis, the fact that it is effectively like a vampire's memoir, um, really brings you into this first person narrative from a vampire's point of view that makes it even more engaging. I think as well that 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 framing device is so wonderful because um, when you when as you watch a film as a viewer, I think sometimes there is that feeling of like, oh yeah, uh, I kind of wish that I was in this world. And and the journalist is, is us. He's sat there listening to the story, and at the end of it, he's like, I I want to be part of that world you're in. And, and Louis is just like, have you not been listening for the past however many hours? I've recounted how horrible my life has been. <laughs> Which I again like I think it speaks to the the kind of um the the subtlety of the humor in the film and I think also that one of the things that really appeals to me about the story and and this is more to Anne Rice's credit I think is that so many vampire properties to say that vampires are kind of an ageless um species who've seen all the kind of wonders and horrors of humanity I don't think we get a sense of the world weariness in a lot of vampire properties. And that is something that I think the film illustrates so beautifully is like the weight of living for so long and kind of the things you've seen. And Louis is such a sad character. And this is something that Lestat kind of really is constantly harping on about to him. And we get the wonderful moment towards the end of the film, whether in the, the car and, um, Lestat's like, oh, Louis always with the, you know, always with the, um, uh, I can't remember what he says, like melodra melodramatics or something like that. And I just, I really enjoy the fact that it not only shows that kind of um, deep sense of loneliness and deep pathos, but also sends it up a little bit and kind of really doesn't, despite the great reverence, I think, that um, Neil Jordan and the cast kind of have for the source material there is this playfulness to it and there is this kind of um nod and a wink I think in a lot of ways which I I really um it's still yeah as Anna said it, it's aged fantastically and there's so many kind of like great trivia bits about this film as well not to make this like the the, the truth and trivia podcast but the, the the kind of casting that this film went into, because obviously we, we've talked about how Tom Cruise was not Anne Rice's first choice. And she, I think initially she wanted Julian Sands, but he was rejected because he wasn't famous enough. And uh, originally in the 70s when she wanted to make the film, uh, she wanted Alan Delon to play Louis. And Cher was meant to be in it at one point in like a, a gender swap version that she was going to play Louis. And... River Phoenix. Make that movie now. I, well, I know. I would watch that now. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, River Phoenix was supposed to play the journalist part, but unfortunately died just before filming. So Christian Slater took over. And I think he donated his salary to, like, charity um, as a kind of mark of respect. So it's just fascinating film. Great, like, kind of Hollywood lore in the... If you ever fancy, like, losing half an hour of your life in a good way, um, the, the Wikipedia page is like a a font of uh, knowledge about this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really is just like a, a classic and it's a shame that we're not putting um, kind of 60 million, you know, this is like the archetypal mid-budget movie and um, it's crazy to think that 60 million is mid-budget, but, um, you know, I just feel like it, 
like a beautiful fancy box of chocolates. It does. <laughs> it, it, it absolutely does. And, and you really, I think, are lost in that world. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's, it's a marvellous film. Yeah, and it does feel that these performances are also perfect. Um, you know, Kirsten Dunst is so remarkable in this, in this really like portraying this old soul within this little girl. And the, generally the chemistry between them all, um, you really feel like these are centuries long relationships. Uh, but thank you both for talking to me about Interview with a Vampire, an absolute banger on all accounts. So if you've got thoughts on these films, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLive. Next week, two strangers will have a train ride they'll never forget in compartment number six. There'll be thrills in the Croatian sunshine with Marina. And for Film Club, we revisit this timeless romance of Brief Encounter. Truth and Movies is a Little Dot Studios production for Little White Lies. Truth and the Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Hannah Strong and Anna Bugatskaya. The podcast is produced by Samuel Lucas, Ellie Aitken, Jamie Mazer, and was edited by Steph Watts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.